Hi, I'm Fola Fagule. And I'm Fei Fawemi. Welcome to our podcast, where we explore the themes and ideas in our forthcoming book titled Formation, The Making of Nigeria from Jihad to Amalgamation. Formation is being published by Cassava Republic and is now available for pre-order on their website. You can find the link to the pre-order page at www.nigeria-formation.com. Over the next few weeks and months, we look forward to interacting with you online and hopefully in person soon. Each episode of our podcast will focus on one theme, idea, event, or character that we covered in Formation, the making of Nigeria from Jihad to Amalgamation. We'll also talk about how we went about doing the research and what we learned while doing so. We hope that this podcast will serve as a useful accompaniment to Formation itself when the book comes out. So, let's get started. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Formation Podcast. Thank you all for listening so far. We've had nearly 3,000 listens and counting. We look forward to hearing from as many more people as possible. In the previous episodes, we covered the first three chapters of our book, Formation, The Making of Nigeria from Jihad to Amalgamation. We've discussed the River Niger, which is a central setting for most of the drama in our narrative. We've discussed the Fulani Jihad at Gobir, which fired the starting gun on the formation of Nigeria. And we've talked a bit about the aftermath of the Jihad in the expanded Sokoto Caliphate. Indeed, today we are traveling down the river to an area southwest of present-day Nigeria. At the time of our story, this was the old Oyo country. But in this chapter, we're going to tell the story from the perspective of the people located in a new settlement called Abelkota, which would come to become a ray of sunrise within the tropics. This is one of my favorite chapters in the book. It has everything from war to diplomacy, economics, treachery, human suffering, and redemption. But before we start, let's take on one message, a really encouraging message we received in relation to our last episode, Caliphate in Session. This message is from a direct descendant of Uthman Danfodio, uh, who is also a modern-day prince of the Sokoto Caliphate, Hamed Machido. Hi, Fala and Fei. This is Ahmed Bello Machido. Just to thank you guys for the podcast and upcoming book. I really enjoyed the podcast and particularly I enjoy learning about my heritage, the Sokoto Caliphate and its adaptability over time from the podcast. As the new generation prince of the Caliphate and a direct descendant of Sheikh Danfodio myself, I'm really happy about the quality of information as well as the objective insights and critiques uh, so far in the podcast. I'm looking forward to learning more about Nigeria's rich history and more importantly for me, what lessons can be drawn from my heritage and others to understand our history and hopefully find strengths in our diversity that will enable us forge ahead as a country. So I'm looking forward to the book, um, more uh, specifically learning about the Caliphate's history, the challenges it's faced, the role of the Caliphate in modern-day Nigeria, and possible roles the institution could play in Nigeria's future. Thanks, guys, and I look forward to the book. Cheers. Thank you so much for your message, Hamed. We were really glad to hear that you enjoyed the podcast so far. Um, We think that you will enjoy the book as well, and we look forward to taking you up on that offer of a guided tour of Sokoto. Your point about uh, understanding the past and its relevance for the future are exactly some of the reasons why we have written Formation. Uh, We hope that you will stick with us through the rest of the story. As it travels across the rest of pre-colonial Nigeria, it is a truly fascinating odyssey. Let's take one more message from Leila Gumbi from Abuja. Hello, Fola and Faye. I'm Leila from Abuja. 
I'm eagerly awaiting the formation in August. My question is on the structure that was set up by Usman Onfodio. Um, do you think it was so resilient that it's now leading to leadership failure in the North? Because I believe that a part of it still exists and a lot of people actually listen to that for leadership instead of the democracy that we have right now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Leila. That's a very interesting and fascinating question. Is the caliphate so respected that it's seen as an alternative to democracy instead of, of, instead of a complement to it? I think the first thing is that Sultan Belo and Abdullahi got the design of the caliphate from the Abbasid Caliphate, which overthrew the Umayyad Caliphate in Iraq more than um, 1,200 years ago. In that sense, um, what you have as the design of the current caliphate is a tried and tested design that has been customized into different societies across the world. It should not be surprising then that the system has remained so resilient till today. To your main question, I'm sure we can imagine a world where this resiliency is not a bad thing. Politicians come and go, and it's not a bad idea to have an institution that commands the respect of the people, even as the quality of politicians goes up or down. In the UK, for instance, there are some messages that people will only listen to if it comes from the Queen. I think the bigger issue is that a lot of our politicians cannot um, imagine what can be done with a long-standing institution like that, other than to play politics with it. Finding institutions that Nigerians trust is not easy. Once you take away religion, there are very, very few left. So if we have one like the Caliphate, we should find ways to adapt it to our democracy and make it work for development. Two, of, two obvious examples are immunization and female education. If we are serious about these things, and there is political will to change them, then the Caliphate is there to be used to do the things that politicians don't have the trust or goodwill to do. Hmm. Precisely. Uh, this is a really important point about institutions generally, which we will come across again and again all through the formation narratives. Uh, in subsequent chapters, uh, I'm sure we will likely return to this uh, point when we discuss the podcast. Uh, for now, shall we turn to Abel Kuta? Yes. So, Fola, we both found this chapter really riveting. Abel Kuta was a prosperous and fiercely independent city-state in pre-colonial southern Nigeria. Uh, yet, in more ways than one, the historical Egba settlement also bore a significant share of the responsibility for the arrival of British influence into Nigeria. It's very similar in a way to how the Sokoto Caliphate consolidated much of northern Nigeria for British conquest. Abel Kuta facilitated the entry of European power into the formational politics of Nigeria. So let me start by asking, did you know before we started writing how important Abel Kuta was to the formation of Nigeria? Because I actually didn't. Um, Abel Kuta never seems to feature as, as much as Lagos or Benin or northern city-states when we talk about colonial history in Nigeria. And what do you think of the irony that a fiercely independent city-state bore so much responsibility for the arrival into its country of a power that would eventually snatch that in independence away from it? Thanks, V. I mean, it's fascinating. I knew quite a bit about the historical city-state of Abel Kuta before we started writing, uh, but even I was amazed by how much I did not know once we started reading uh, and, and writing the, the chapter. Um, as we said earlier, the story of Abel Kuta has everything, and I can't wait for modern-day readers to engage with it. One of the things I'm happy we were able to do with Formation, really, is to tell the story in a detailed way, 
a sort of blow-by-blow account of how the foreign policy of Abelkuta directly facilitated the entry of British influence into their country. Uh, and the irony that you describe of how this will ultimately lead to the formation of Nigeria and the loss of their much uh, prized, uh, prized independence. Uh, one of the common themes we found so often in formation was that uh, success carried within it the, the seeds of future failure. It will come up very often in our story, and Abel Kota is really another prime example. Uh, in this chapter, Sunrise Within the Tropics, we arrive uh, in the Oyo country at just about the precise moment of its spectacular disintegration. Uh, our readers will see the linkage between the revolt of Afonja, Atilori, uh, and Danfodio's jihad, which preceded it. They will also see how the collapse of Oyo led to widespread disarray and civil war in this country and how Abelkota emerged as a newly independent and quite sophisticated city-state after these wars commenced. Abelkota was a place of freedom, you know, born out of war. Independence was the most important thing to everyone who came to settle there. And soon enough, they formed a truly prosperous and powerful settlement. You know, it was a settlement that was really uh, a remarkable place, uh, which we describe in some detail in, in formation. They settled under the leadership of some really uh, main uh, big giants of, of history, led in particular by a man named Sodeke. Uh, we, we talk a lot about Sodeke and, and the early Abelkota elite, uh, including the famous Samuel Ajay Crowther, uh, the Saru cleric, and Efunwe Tinumbu, the, the trader. Um, Yet the Abelkota indigenous elite, for all their industriousness and capability, or perhaps because of it, they realized quickly that they needed outside assistance to be able to survive in a country that was still constantly in the throes of a deadly civil war. It was an existential issue for them. How do we stay alive and thrive in the midst of our enemies? Uh, Shodeke and his chiefs made the calculation that European political and military influence, which was newly arriving in the area, could, could do the trick for them. The rest, as they say, is history. Indeed. So let, let's continue with that theme for a moment. Uh, what fascinating new insight did you gain into the historical Abelkuta uh, while you were doing the research for the book? For, for me, I used to think that a small town like Abelkuta not having any connections with the wider world uh, in the 19th century. After all, there were no planes or phones back then. But we see from this chapter how Abel Kuta was actually quite plugged in to the world, even if unwittingly, into global affairs and, and used some of them for his own advantage. This formula cemented in my mind the idea of Nigeria being shaped as much by external events as internal ones. Uh, but what new insights stood out for you? Ah, new insights. Um, you know, definitely for me it was Balog Mishodeke. Uh, I called him the uh, Egba George Washington. Uh, in, in one of the early drafts uh, of the book, but that description did not make it into the final version of the book, which is fine. Um, the man was a giant, one of the most important figures in the history of Nigeria, but hardly spoken about or remembered in the popular imagination, which is quite unfortunate. He was the leader of, Egba, uh, of the Egba in their war of independence from Oyo. He led their migration uh, to Abelkota, was essentially the founder of the place which is not an easy designation to give uh, any one person, because the Egba were a fiercely independent confederation of groups who never really acknowledged uh, any one leader. 
It was a testimony to the greatness of Shudekeh that he was the one person whom they could all agree with and unite under as their pioneer civil leader after the War of Independence. As I said, a bit like George Washington before him in another country far away, it was Shudekeh's vision alongside his domestic and foreign policy genius which helped a small upstart settlement like Abelkuta become such an important regional industrial and political power, you know, to the point that Britain identified them as the group to partner with for pursuing their own regional agenda. Shureke also identified the British as important to his own vision, so it was both ways, and his own uh, regional agenda. So it was a win-win, uh, at least for that moment when they originally partnered. But as we shall see uh, later uh, in the book, it wasn't so much a win-win for the future. So there were many other insights in this chapter, but this was my favorite. Indeed, yeah. Um, at the beginning of this project, I think Balogun Shodeke was, was just your guy. But by the end, I think he had become my guy too. Um, I, I think the transition from war hero to effective political leader is, um, is never as easy as it seems. And there are far more failures than successes, which is probably why men like George Washington, which you mentioned, and Charles de Gaulle continue to be so venerated. It was good to read about another Nigerian in history after Sultan Belo, who fit into this um, rarefied group. Great stuff. I think this is a good point to take a break, and then we'll continue. Welcome back. We'd like to pause here and talk a bit about why we wrote Formation, the making of Nigeria from Jihad to Amalgamation, and why we think this story is so important. Neither of us is trained as a historian. We both work in financial services. But we share a belief that a careful understanding of history is fundamental to navigating the future. One thing I like to say is that the past is an ongoing business. With more information, we can go back in time to edit the past. The history of Nigeria is a great example of this as it still affects the present. And if we don't understand it, the future is guaranteed to look just like the past. Exactly. My biggest hope for formation is that it provides a nuanced and thoughtful starting point for many future journeys into the history of our culture, politics, and economics. We also hope that it begins a conversation that will help navigate a more advantageous future for the humans of Nigeria. So, let's get back to it. And we're back. Before the break, we talked a bit about Shodeke and the historical city-state of Abelkuta. Let's focus a little now on some of the other aspects of the formation story that we covered in this chapter. Sunrise Within the Tropics also covered events at Lagos, Badagri, Dahome, Abome, Wida, and London. There was so much connectivity between the story in a way that I'm not sure modern readers appreciate. So to your mind, what was the most important lesson about this period and its influence on the formation of modern Nigeria? For me, it was how much Abel Kuta had his say in the politics and affairs of Lagos. The, the situation is probably the reverse today, but back then, Abel Kuta viewed Lagos almost like a junior brother and interfered regularly in his, in his local politics as such. Yeah, this, this is a great point. Uh, and I'm glad we were able to illustrate it in this chapter because I don't think it's something that many people understand. Uh, Abel Kuta was the highly influential tale that was wagging the dog uh, which was Lagos. Uh, Lagos that we termed the city of slaves because its, its uh, economy was built 
on human uh, on the export of human bodies essentially um, you asked about lessons from the period for me it was about how economic development works you know with the collapse of oil there were so many contenders for the new dominant force in the southwest areas of the river Abel Kota was the least likely to become important and yet they did uh, not only did they survive uh, and thrive they even dominated the area and they were ultimately the ones who brought in colonizers to cement their domination. I think they were able to do that because they focused on trade and economic development. The laser focus of their leadership was on how to open up favorable trade roads and routes for their people. They recognized the change in demand for export goods uh, with the Industrial Revolution from human bodies, which was the old way, um, to agricultural commodities. They saw the need for an entrepot uh, country in the hinterland of Lagos, Badagri, and Wida, uh, from where trade goods would originate or be transshipped from even deeper within the country across the river Niger. They were the quickest to transition from trading in humans to trading in goods uh, and other manufactures. Uh, and that's why they survived and thrived. I think is such an important lesson for the modern day successor country, Nigeria. You know, just like the industrial revolution, there's an energy and technological revolution which has already happened internationally, continues to happen all the time. And like the export of human bodies, a transition from trading in crude oil needs to happen. Uh, a transition from exporting crude oil needs to happen. Uh, like the early Abel Kota visionaries like Shodeke, uh, the subnational leadership elite in Nigeria today that understands this and focuses like a laser on creating uh, conditions for trade and export of goods that the world is seeking will be the ones to survive and, and thrive in the future. Mm. Very, very important lesson. Um, it, it holds for our, as much as it did for Abelkuta then and uh, as for Nigeria today. An important lesson, as you say. Uh, final question. You started talking about the future. Let me frame it in a different way. What does Abelkuta mean in Nigeria's politics today? The, the joke is often about how the Egbas have caused so much trouble in Nigerian politics, usually referring to the long and damaging rivalry between um, MKO Abiola and Ulusegun Basonjo. Uh, more recently, we've had uh, former governor of Obu State, Ibikunle Amosun, who has been one of the most influential Southwest politicians in the current government. Will, will Abel Kuta continue to be a, a center of leadership in Nigeria? And are there any emerging Egba leaders we should keep an eye on for the future? Ah, the, the Egba and their leaders. <laughs> uh, that's, that's probably another book on its own, to be honest. Um, and it's really instructive for me, uh, you know, at least that there are two national leaders of modern Nigeria who have emerged from among the Egba and the Owu of Abel Kuta, at least two. And that's just the headline. Um, there are too many important cultural and political influences from Egba that, that we can safely you know, count on this podcast. You know, starting from literature giant and Nobel laureate Wale Shoenka, that's another headline example. In the book, we covered uh, Fela's mother, Fumila Ransom Kuti, um, and the entire clan uh, of, of Ransom Kuti that has been an unbelievable cultural heirloom for Nigeria. And none of that is surprising when you understand the pre-colonial history of the place as we laid out information. 
which was what attracted so much development and commerce and learning and to, to Egba. Um, but is it still the center of leadership in learning and development and commerce and trade? I don't think you can truly be affirmative in, in answering that question. I'll confess that I don't know enough about the modern-day regional political dynamics uh, to say uh, you know, why that is and what needs to be done about it. But I certainly think that there is enough evidence from history about what could be done uh, to put this important city back where it belongs in the commanding heights of Nigeria's cultural and economic development. At the end of the day, I think we can all agree that uh, visionary and selfless leadership like that of Shodeke is what will move the dial. And uh, I certainly hope that formation helps to begin that conversation. Indeed. <clears throat> Thank you very much. For, uh, before we leave, let's take one more message, this time from Tunde Obadero. Hi, my name is Tunde Obadero. Um, fantastic, uh, fantastic podcast. Three great episodes as well. Um, I have a thought and then two quick questions. I was um, fascinated by the idea of, of reading and ransom taking you know, from way back and the similarities with the Napoli. I also want to know if your research threw up anything with regards to regular employee employer relationship side by side by side with um, with, um, with slavery, with domestic slavery. And lastly, do you think that uh, the mental legacy of the caliphate played any role in the mindset of Northern Nigeria? as the Southeast declared um, an independent state of Africa. Is there any way that some of the superiority complex in court that may have been uh, passed down from the Caliphate played a role in how they reacted to the Biafran state? Thanks, Tunde. Uh, the first question is an interesting one that I've often, I've often thought about. Please note that my answer is only my, my speculation as I've not done any research into it. Uh, but the lack of what you might call regular employment, where a person is paid regular wages for a job, is quite striking in Nigerian history. What you will find is either slavery, which was of course unpaid, or quote-unquote contract work, where you are paid a sort of peace rate. And then of course things like um, sharecropping, where your, your owner gave you land to farm, and then you kept a certain percentage of what you produce. There's a story we came across of when the British were trying to find workers to build a rail line in the north. Um, they were advertising the jobs as a regular salary job, and but they couldn't find anybody to take up the job. But when they changed it to contract jobs where there was no permanent relationship and you paid the workers per day, they were amazed at the quality of workers that they found and how hard those workers worked. Hmm. Basically, people were free to work as much as they liked and get paid for it. So you come in, you work today, get paid for it, and then maybe you come back in another five days, uh, that sort of thing. So the worker had autonomy, if you like. So this is my um, speculative theory. I think this is linked in some way to why owing salaries is fairly common in Nigeria today. Once you add to the fact that slavery was only finally stamped out in Nigeria in 1933, it's not far-fetched to say that the idea of paid employment is a fairly recent idea in Nigeria. Um, this is not an excuse for employers not to pay. Please pay your workers if you're an employer owing your workers. <laughs> but it's just something we need to be aware of uh, as part of our history. Um, your second question on the Caliphate and the Biafran War is not one I've, I've really thought about uh, deeply. I don't think the reaction was anything unique though. But uh, I mean, you'll probably find that kind of reaction in any other country where a small part of the country wanted to break away. But but I'll take that away as, a, as homework. Mm. Nicely, nicely put, uh, Faye. 
Uh, and that's it for today. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, remember that formation is now available for pre-order. Uh, so you have to go to www.nigeria-formation.com um, to pre-order your, your copy. Um, the, the copies that are available to be pre-ordered are hardback copies. They're quite unique relative to the rest of the publication, which will be um, paperback. Um, so please go ahead and pre-order now. Uh, in the next episode, we will be discussing uh, the chapter that we called Mad Men and Missionaries. And it's about the madmen and missionaries who forced their way into pre-colonial Nigeria and how their actions helped shape the, the future country. So we'll see you then. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for our book, Formation, The Making of Nigeria from Jihad to Amalgamation, being published by Cassava Republic, and which is now available for pre-order on their website. We would love to hear from you. You can leave us a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash Nigeria Formation forward slash message. The link to this is also in the podcast notes. Please leave your name and where you live in the voice message. We will play it and answer your questions in the next episode. You can also continue the conversation with us on Twitter by tagging our handles at double F, that's at D-O-U-B-L-E-E-P-H, and at Falafagbule, that's at F-O-L-A-F-A-G-B-U-L-E. Please also use hashtag FormationNG on Twitter. You can also get more information and updates online at www.nigeria-formation.com. The pre-order link is also in the podcast notes. This pre-order is for a limited edition hardback copy. Please tell your friends and family. We look forward to speaking with you again soon about formation.